Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of the homos review the latest movie theater releases. I'm Jason LeBroy. And I'm Rebecca Larte, and we have three movies for you today. Three Identical Strangers, Whitney, and Sorry to Bother You. And as always, we're going to rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binger being our highest rating. Consume in moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life is too short for that mess. Jason, my friend, what is up with you? Well, thank you for asking. Uh, let's see. You know, I had, um, this past weekend, I had one of those experiences that just really helps you feel your age. It makes you feel not so fresh, not so young. Um, I had the occasion to go to a concert that I had no interest in attending mm. um, to go and hang out with some friends. Uh, the concert was one Ms. Dua Lipa. Mm, two yeah. Lipas. Yes, yes. Which is of course, Spanish for two Lipas. Uh, like or, two princes. Or, or Italian. Two princes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All roads lead to the spin doctors mm-hmm. when it comes to music conversations we have on this show. So, <clears throat> I, yeah, I, I, I find Dua Lipa uh, completely unremarkable as a musician. I find her songs to be dull. I find her image to be blah. Um, I think she looks like, you know, if Gal Gadot was like also a pop star, which is, you know, which, Possible. which is to say that could be coming beautiful, uh, but not not much interesting about it. Oh, nonetheless, I, I decided to go uh, to go and hang out with some friends. And uh, and it was kind of a, a, a series of worst case scenarios played out from there. So the show was at <laughs> Bill Graham and um, and we had bought tickets that were general admission. And so I'm thinking, OK, I go to like a million concerts a year. I know how concerts are. I know what time I can get there. I know like where to go, what to do. So we get to the venue around nine o'clock and I'm like, okay, like she'll be going on in about like 15 minutes or so. Um, so we'll plenty of time to get there, get situated, find our friends, hang out and just focus on them because that's the only reason we're going. Uh, nine o'clock we get there and literally the second we step foot into the auditorium, the lights go down and she goes on stage. Oh, on time. Impossible. What headliner ever goes on at nine? I've never seen such a thing. Certainly not outside of like arenas. Like if he's like arena shows. And the, then, like it's time to the minute. Yeah, time to the minute. This was Bill Graham Auditorium. This is not an arena show. Uh, and so and so we so we were just standing there in the very back of this very, very, very crowded floor. Uh, turns out people love their two lipas. Love them. One, two. Um, here. And uh, and so we commenced to stand there uh, just all the way in the back and just just spend the first few songs just like wildly like rubbernecking trying to find our friends anywhere, anywhere around us. They sent us a picture from where they were in relation to the stage. We're looking in that area. We're not finding them. And we never do. What? Never find our friends. It was, it was Ram and Devin. Never found Ram and Devin. And just had to just fucking stand there. And I'm thinking, okay, well, the good news is she only has one album. And so this thing's going to be over in an hour tops. That bitch somehow stretched her one album into a 90-minute show. Wow. How? I haven't the slightest. 
Uh, and, you know, Scott was relieved because since I don't care about tulipas, I did not, like, constantly try to, like, jam us forward into the crowd mm. to be closer and closer and closer to the stage. Oh, you do that? Because you're both well above six foot. Well, no, I generally don't. I wouldn't say I do that, but I am consciously, I'm constantly aware of, like, oh, is there, like, an easy up maneuver I can make right now to get closer? Mm. And But don't worry, I am never not hyper aware uh, of my height mm-hmm. in relation to those around me at concerts. It's my burden to bear. And uh, generally, I'm only defined if I get there earlier than mm-hmm. some short people. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. I'm sorry, short people. Get there earlier. Uh, if I get to a concert super early, it's because I want to be close. Mm-hmm. I'm, you and all the creeps up front. Yep, I'm one of the upfront creeps. And uh, and right now, literally, as we're taping this, I am going to be late to a show that I want to see tonight. Um, and Which show is that? Uh, it is Pedal and Camp Cope at the rickshaw. Uh, and Heidi was supposed to go with me, but something came up. Don't it always. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah. So we just had a so so basically, what would have been um, a best case scenario if I like the artist, like the show started the second I got there. Mm-hmm. She played for an hour and a half. Became this like dystopian nightmare in our experience of it because we couldn't have cared less. The audience was fanatical. Really? Like, just wild-eyed insanity. People fucking love her. I don't understand it. So I'm saying they're feeling like hopelessly out of touch with whatever like thing that resonates with people about Tulipas. And, uh, but then... We brought it all back home because I'm saying they're thinking like, well, I, what do I have in common with these, with the rest of these people? Because I don't understand what they like about this artist. I don't understand what they like about the music. This is just, I feel so out of place. What am I even doing here? So the show ends and, you know, the, the giant sweaty, sweltering pandemonium dance floor is everyone still staying there. And then the house uh, mix comes on. And the first song that comes on is I Want to Dance with Somebody mm. by Miss Whitney Houston. And the place goes apeshit. Oh. And so, and everyone, like, it, it felt like probably like 70% of the people stayed on the floor and just danced the entire time, <laughs> that song. And uh, and I was like, this, this is a beautiful moment. Aww. Especially because I had just seen the Whitney documentary that we'll be reviewing a bit later. Yes. And, yes. Um, and I was thinking, like, you know, she endures. She endures. Like, all these fucking, like, 20-year-olds. Uh, at this mm-hmm. Two Leapers show, are still know every word of I Want to Dance with Somebody. Oh my God, it's so good. And they just so dance their asses off to it. So that was the good piece um, to come out of that. And also the piece to build the bridge to, to get to connect me to my generationally removed mm. uh, fellow concert goers mm-hmm. at the Two Leapers show. Rebecca, what is up with you? Um, so I don't usually have too much up with me um, this past year or so no i haven't had a lot going on not at all spent a lot of working and then trying to keep up with the podcast um but this week i do have something up with me um my my partner who is who lives um abroad um in london is moving here tomorrow and uh we're gonna be a real couple and she fucking loves dua lipa she does and i'm like i'm not even gonna tell her about this podcast (laughs) I should tell her I do a podcast, but <laughs> she does because literally the first time I ever heard new rules uh, was when she sang it at my birthday karaoke. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> to mm-hmm. me, she still owns that song. Well, I mean, I guess it's a compliment. She does it better than two lipos. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I like the way you can, you're, you're doubling down on anglic- anglicizing 
than her name. You're like, let's just say the in re- this country, it's two leaps. The record will show that you made the joke first. I did. <laughs> Not if I erase it. <laughs> that with great power becomes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, she absolutely loves Duliba, and I'm sure she will be heartbroken if she misses the show. And you are going to have a fucking earful the next time you see her if she does hear this podcast, <laughs> which I am just going to sit back and watch. <laughs> <laughs> While I eat popcorn, um, so, uh, so she has, well, she's not afraid of to share her opinions. No. Um, like all the people that I care about, um, <laughs> very opinionated. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited. It's a new chapter. Um, in maybe maybe you'll see that I'm uh, less uh, surly. <laughs> Weekly? Who can say? Or more. Or more. Who can say? Yeah. I, you know. Maybe I'll save all my weekly surliness instead of like giving it out every day. I'll save it for you. <laughs> that, you know, I mean, I feel like that is a pattern we've had in the past mm-hmm. and we can we can keep that going. Concentrated. Uh, and this is, uh, yeah, so guys, right now what you're hearing is uh, is Rebecca uh, unencumbered. For the last, for the last time, uh, in the foreseeable future. I mean, I'm hella cumbered. Um, <laughs> you got plenty of cumbers. Just cumbers all over. Right, um, it's true. I mean, teacup does keep you uh, on your toes. She really so does. It's not it's like very... you've been alone in that sense. Demanding cat. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah. So super excited. Yeah. So you've just been frantically preparing the apartment. Yeah. For another um, person to live in it. I mean, I, yeah. I have to to give teacup the conversation about like sharing space boundaries. Boundaries. Uh huh. Not trying to kill your partner in her sleep. Right. Um. Which she's usually pretty good about. I think teacups. She just likes more attention. So she's like, oh, another set of hands to pet me. All right. I'm a, I'm on board. And they already are acquainted. Yes. Is yeah. teacup a good judge of character generally? Uh. Yeah. I think so. Mm. Um. She is a little. She's always more friendly than you think she's going to be because mm. she's kind of has a gruff face. RBF. Uh, she has an <laughs> RBF for sure, for sure. Um, and but she's like always, you know, really into, um, really into uh, being being friendly. So um, the few times that she hasn't been, it's, I've kept watch. I, I keep I keep a kind of that. You've noted. I've noted. Yeah. Um, wow. So yeah, well, um, that's very exciting. what's up with me. Very exciting, very exciting times. Uh, you know, so I think really just you know milestones for both of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> really is what I'm hearing. Um, shall we to the movies? Let's do it. All right. Uh, the first movie we have this week is Three Identical Strangers, New York, 1980. Three complete strangers accidentally discover that they are identical triplets separated at birth. The 19-year-old's joyous reunion catapults them into international fame but it also unlocks an extraordinary and disturbing secret that goes beyond their own lives and could transform our understanding of human nature forever. I wouldn't believe the story if someone else were telling it, but it's true, every word of it. It started when I went to college. It was the first day of school. All these people are coming up to me saying, Eddie, how are you? Eddie, hi. I'm like, my name's not Eddie. I don't know what you're talking about. As soon as this guy turned around, I knew it was Eddie's double. I said, you're not going to believe this. You have a twin brother. Oh, my God. As I reached out to knock on the door, it opens. And there I am. His eyes are my eyes. My eyes are his eyes. And it's true. And then the story went from being amazing to incredible. It was an article to Twins Reunited. I think I might be the third. So let me just say a couple things about this movie. Um, 
I feel like I'm not able to give it a very accurate review because um, I had a very fun day about two months ago with our good friend Heidi, and she had heard about this story on like Dateline, I think, because she's a big Dateline watcher, <laughs> which is a whole a funny thing. She watches a lot of grandma news. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of date, a lot of Dateline. Um, and she was like, "The story is crazy," and she like you know started telling it, and it was like really interesting, and I was really sucked in. And then you came and you met us while she was telling it, and you were like, "Oh my god, they made a movie out of that! It's coming out." I think you saw it at TIFF, right? Uh, uh, I think I, it, they had just screened it locally. I think cause mm. it, it played at SF Film Festival. Gotcha. So I saw it there. And so they go on and they start talking about the story. And um, so I was very excited to see the movie. And the the trouble with that is that this movie, you know, it's a wild story that you're not going to believe unless yeah. someone has already told it to you. <laughs> <sighs> So I think it, like what one would possibly think, and if I can go back to the the feeling I had when I heard you guys telling story the story the first time, you're not going to believe it, and it was like riveting to even just like hear our friends talk about it. So to see the movie uh, without the information, I will, would probably be fantastic. Yeah, I found it a little bit of a snooze because I knew all of the all of what was going to happen. Uh, that's unfortunate. There know, were definitely still some interesting things that you you could never predict. And I feel. I was definitely drunk when I told you what happens in this movie. And I guess I was hoping that you were as drunk as I was. No, I was... Uh, <laughs> that you would not retain it. <laughs> um, but you did. And uh, and I'm very sorry about that. Because this is the kind of story that you want the joy of telling someone. Just mm. so you can watch their shock and disbelief. Because it is like... This is one of the most insane true stories you will ever see any documentary about Mm -hmm. period period like no more calls this is the winner um and so with that in mind i'm going to try to we're going to learn from um our mistakes and we're not going to go too much into the story what we will say is that you should see this movie Mm -hmm. and you should see it knowing as little as possible Mm -hmm. about what happens in it and just trust us trust us it is worth it it is worth seeing this story does not disappoint it's a story that you don't want to believe is true it's yeah no it's not like well at first it feels like this is that's that's the unique trajectory of this Mm. movie is that it's one review pointed out it opens with what feels like should be the denouement Mm. like it opens with you know these three triplets who were separated at birth being reunited through pure happenstance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, right it really was just people like you, you know you hear in the trailer there like mm-hmm. yeah like if this one if this one guy had not gone to the community college in new york state that he went to um and <laughs> he would never have had people mistake him for his twin that he didn't know he had right especially in, in like in new york right like yeah. i'm sure they probably like overlapped mm-hmm. paths before yeah. but nobody knows each other enough to be like oh that's not the same guy they right. would just think oh it's the same person yeah uh, so it was definitely a very unique circumstance that they you know, were able to find each other and it helps that you know that, that each of these brothers did each of them their their one look they had is a very distinct mm-hmm, look mm-hmm. they have very like animated faces big features like big hair you know i feel like andy sandberg's gonna win his oscar finally for playing all three of these guys in the in the scripted version of this movie we have very unique unique builds yeah very unique builds um i would have taken them all i'll tell you right now <laughs> in their prime um handsome gentlemen uh but this, so it starts with what feels like a really happy denouement mm-hmm. um and then you know through that these guys kind of become goes to paris once me. <laughs> 
Go ahead. <laughs> Someone just got back from their European tour. I was I was saying the T. I was saying denouement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You wouldn't say that if you were saying the Parisian way. Go on. So, nice. on. so they, they so they become and they become this media sensation because no one can believe it and and you know if I I don't remember this because this happened in like it was like 1980 was when they first found each other but this then, also kind of reminds me of a wild country moment where it's like this seems like it was a big thing mm-hmm. how come I've never heard about this before right well I think with this in particular it was just it was really like the early 80s was when these guys were making the rounds. Um, and when we were too young, I feel like it's a story my mom would have told me. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, let's, let, we can ask, let's yeah, ask our parents. Ask why, our did parents. You, why did you never tell us about the triplets? Mm-hmm. So I want to know, uh, you know, I knew about those, <laughs> those old lady country singer triplets that were always showing up on married mm-hmm. with children mm-hmm. and <laughs> golden girls, but, uh, but not these triplets. So, uh, and they even have a cameo in desperately seeking Susan. Right. That was interesting, which they show in this film. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, so feels like like this kind of feel good too good you know too crazy to be true human interest story of these three triplets who didn't know each other existed being reunited through pure chance and uh but then the questions that you would start to ask yourself after hearing that story such as like well like how did that happen that they were triplets and that they like they didn't know that each other existed Mm -hmm. did their parents know did their adoptive parents know that they existed um, you know, and uh, that that when you start to pull at that thread, uh, that is what leads to a lot of other stuff mm-hmm. that you find out that is very shocking. And uh, and it kind of goes from there. The whole thing is, you know, is sort of a meditation on nature versus nurture um, and uh, which is kind of the debate over nature versus versus nurture is both sort of like a micro and macro storyline mm, in mm-hmm. this movie. And uh, yeah, all we can say is that it takes a lot of really surprising turns. Um, this is the feature debut of a British filmmaker named Tim Wardle. And he definitely, um, you know, he, he gives the film the feel of, uh, of just a really sort of just tense thriller. Like it feels like it's mm-hmm. more exciting and more suspenseful than most studio thrillers. Yeah. I like the fact that this movie had, um, yeah, while it's so, you know, there's a talking head portion, they interview the the brothers, but then it also has that, uh, the very like non-documentary feel of a thriller. Right. Because it has reenactments. Right. But it, but it's very clearly a documentary, but Mm -hmm. documentaries don't usually give you that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, and this is apparently he worked with um, Tim Wardle worked with a documentary production company that did a doc a few years back called The Imposter, uh, which is another like way too crazy to be true, but it's true type doc that I saw in Portland a few years back. And um, that's about like this family who'd had um, a son go missing for years. And then one day uh, it seemed like their son came home except for it was like this just completely random guy oh i think i heard about that who just like showed up and somehow was able to like pass himself off as their missing son and you told me the story too (laughs) god damn it (laughs) you're a monster oh i'm sorry uh yeah this is what i do i just i'm just like oh this is too juicy to keep to myself Mm -hmm. you're like then there was a singer her name was whitney houston listen to this (laughs) yeah wait till you got that one 
So yeah, the imposter had a very similar filmmaking style, very similar storytelling style to the way the just the cinematic conventions that they use to you know tell the story. The combination of talking heads with reenactments with like just very movie style editing gimmicks and but you know it all works. The cast of characters you meet in this movie mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> is 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 a trip indeed. Uh, the brothers themselves are still very charismatic mm-hmm. um, and, uh, y- you know, sympathetic characters. Yeah. Um, I love the fact that there's so much footage of them from them finding each other because it was on like all the daytime television shows. Again, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, the scene from Desperately Seizing Su- Seeking Susan. Um, so you get to see what it was like to be them, like their home movies. Right. Um, I have a question for you. Um, you know, as I was thinking about how they are very um, charismatic and, and, and sympathetic do you feel like this movie um, exploits their story at all? Or do you feel like it treats them with respect? I think it treats them with respect. Apparently, this was also... Um, the brothers had had a lot of different projects over the years that kind of got started but didn't go anywhere. Or they had a lot of different people approach them over the years to tell their story. And they were very, very guarded, understandably, and really wanted mm. to protect their story. And it took a lot. It took, I think, four years for Tim Wardle to convince them to trust him to let him tell the sort of definitive version of the story. Mm. And they're like, "We've been screwed by Dateline." He's <laughs> um, <laughs> like, "I won't do that to you." So, um, no, I mean, I think it's very respectful. I do think, you know, some some have suggested that maybe he gets a little carried away with all the cinematic stuff, all the bells and mm. whistles, and with like sort of withholding um, the way that he layers sorts of like not misinformation but that he like intentionally withholds a lot of things um you know he treats it very much like a story mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know for you know he definitely relishes the every beat of this shocking story um and as in and there are reveals that come as you keep watching it that are so shocking that some might say that it would be more humane to like start with certain acknowledgements mm-hmm. that like okay this thing happened to this person and da, 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 and here's where this person is um and he doesn't do that his his he does seem like his his allegiance first and foremost it feels like is to the story to the audience to the audience to just give you like the most wild fucking ride of your life um and yet but I don't feel I don't feel like he was ever really betraying them either because they always emerge. They never seem anything less than sympathetic, right? And they don't they don't seem upset. There was just one part, and this won't give anything away. But there's one part in the movie towards the end where he shows them a video of an interview, and that made me feel uncomfortable. It made me because I mm. didn't realize what they were going to be watching, and I didn't really want to be watching them watching something mm. and that made me feel weird and uh, voyeuristic and uh, it ended up being okay yeah. um, but uh, but at the same time it made me feel strange yeah um, yeah that's fair yeah I mean I, I think that he yeah I think that he, you know he, he maybe airs a little bit on the side of sensationalism mm-hmm. uh, um, but uh, but with that said I, I I think the brothers are very happy with the movie yeah um, they were at the Sundance premiere and they have only said positive things about it in the press. And That's I think great. they're very happy with what he did. And they do feel like he did justice by their fucking crazy story. And the story that continues to unfold. Uh, what are you giving this one? Binge it. Same. Yeah, this is... Considering. We're, we're, we're in a real moment with, with documentaries right now. Uh, between RBG, Won't You Be My Neighbor, this, mm. the next movie we're going to talk about. This is shaping up to be the summer of documentaries. Uh, it's going to be a crowded field at the Oscars this year, I'll tell you that. 
Uh, Three Identical Strangers is rated PG-13 for some mature thematic material. And that brings us to documentary number two, which is Whitney. This intimate, unflinching portrait of Whitney Houston and her family probes beyond familiar tabloid headlines and sheds new light on the spellbinding trajectory of Houston's life. Using never-before-seen archival footage, exclusive demo recordings, rare performances, audio archives, and original interviews with the people who knew her best, filmmaker Kevin McDonald unravels the mystery behind The Voice, who thrilled millions even as she struggled to make peace with her own troubled past. She was simple. She became Whitney Houston when it was time for her to get on stage. People think it's so damn easy, and it's not. All of the things coming at her, she just wanted to escape the pressure. say anything you wanted to say to her, what would you say? I love you, Whitney. Everybody loved her. She was a little girl wishing upon a star. I was trying to find my way back home. Okay, so I wasn't able to watch this one. No spoilers. Don't tell me what happened. I mean, you were there. We were together the night she died. We were together the night she died. It was February something. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, because it was Grammy weekend, mm-hmm. like 2012, I believe. It was Chinese New Year here yep. in San Francisco. Yep, and we were at and, a party that our friend Beth Dean was having at uh, at Lipo Lounge mm-hmm. in um, in Chinatown, and uh, and it was a she was calling it, I think she was calling it a Chinese noir party, which mm-hmm. at the time did not strike us as appropriation. Um, and uh, which she was kind of you know paying homage to like in the mood for love mm-hmm. and you know Wong Kar Wai movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and yeah, we were all standing around at Lipo, which is it turns out a cellular dead zone, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. were many many um, Chinese Mai Tais in. and then on the TV over the bar, it just suddenly comes up. I don't remember who saw it first. I just remember like this this ripple um, breaking out as we all one or the other are like just seeing it on the the headline on the TV, and are just sort of shouting at each other. And it's sort of like you can just feel it puncturing this bubble of like drunk happiness. Mm-hmm. And it was mostly gays, and so mm-hmm. we're all. So we all just start screaming and trying to look at our phones to see if we can confirm it to see if we have any other information because for whatever reason, even though it's on like it's like on CNN. You know, you still feel like, well, I need to have a second source. I need to have something else tell me this is really happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then and then we all just like couldn't get our phones to work, and so we just spilled out into the street, mm-hmm. um, onto on Stockton, just like just trying to get our phones to work, and and just going into shock. And you know, and it was one of those things where, you know, like we all knew she wasn't. Was she obviously had had a long, dark history of you know of that we'd all watched as a world with substance abuse, but she'd been on the rebound mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at that time. You know, uh, she'd been on the rebound. She had been for the last, I don't know, like two years or so. She'd been, you know, she'd had a comeback album. Um, you know, she was looking healthier. She did the Sparkle remake. Um, yeah, she looked like she she looked like things were good. It looked like she was going to have a, a full comeback. And we'd all, and we'd had Whitney forever. You know, we'd always had Whitney. She, you know, her first album came out in 85, 
So, you know, for as long as any of us could remember, she'd always been there. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. what was that? What's your recollection of that night? Um, Yeah, something very similar. I think I was actually outside when I I heard I had reception. Mm -hmm. Um, I was smoking, I think. And uh, I was with uh, another gay guy that we know. And we were just like, what? Like, we both couldn't believe it. it, But it's also, it was Chinese New Year's. There were, like, fireworks going off everywhere. Mm. And we were drunk. And it just felt very, like, surreal. Um, And just ultimately so sad. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember a group of you went out and did, like, Whitney karaoke all night afterward. And I remember Mm. I was very salty that I wasn't invited. Well. You knew I would just, you knew I would commandeer it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we, we want to have space and room for everyone. <laughs> I understand. And I did just two nights ago do a lot of very loud shrieking Whitney karaoke. You did. I'm surprised you can still talk today, frankly. I mean, when I go into my falsetto, it doesn't actually hurt my real voice. Hmm. It's a safe place. Um, Not for others, but, but for me, no, it's a yeah, safe place. No, yeah, for others, it's uh, the danger zone. Yeah. This is also not the first Whitney Houston documentary that's no. out right now, right? No, or- it, it isn't. It is not. Um, so there was another Whitney documentary by Nick Broomfield, who's more of a kind of a, a, a tabloidy, muckrakey kind of... Um, he made the Kurt and Courtney documentary, if you remember that, oh. the one with the conspiracy theory that she murdered Kurt. So you have... A bias, <laughs> I do, um, but uh, but no, that's just what he's known for. Nick Broomfield is is known as a, a bit more of a sensationalist, and um, and I did see, I saw, can I be me was making the film festival rounds last year. I think it premiered at Tribeca or something, and it played at Frameline, and then it show it was Showtime um, had the rights, and so Showtime aired it, and uh, like last July, and I remember I watched it on a Saturday morning by myself when Scott was in Utah, and I was just devastated by it i was absolutely devastated and then i when you say devastated by it you mean it like it it made you very sad or like you you didn't like the movie oh no it made me very very sad okay it is it is whitney's story is one of the saddest stories of any story it is it is just the cumulative sadness of reliving her story is walloping to the point where, so eventually, I don't know, for whatever reason, I thought when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, there was there was so much in there, just just so much nostalgia, just thinking back to like the mm. great pop divas of like late 80s, early 90s. And I was thinking, oh, my friend Rory would love this. And so then I had Rory come over and watch it with me and Scott like a few days later. And he came in all like, yeah, Whitney, Whitney, Whitney. And then after it was over, he looked at me like with these very serious eyes and he was like, I feel broken by what I just watched and I'm wondering why you made me watch it Mm. and I'm like I don't know I just thought you might want to see it he's like I am very sad I'm like wow I'm like I'm sorry uh and then he just like yeah he's like fully like snoopy walked out of the room and this is the other movie this is the other movie um and uh so yeah so that movie absolutely destroyed me and um and it was it just one of those things where with Whitney it was similar with the Amy Winehouse doc a few years mm. ago which is what this keeps getting compared to where like you know all this time passes and then the time comes for like okay time for I guess like a reevaluation and like let's revisit this person and you know and more time has passed between Whitney's death and this movie than it had passed between Amy's death and her movie um but uh with both of them just to just to contemplate who these women were and who they meant to us you know what they meant to us what their talent meant to us what their voices sounded like and you know who they were as entertainers who they were as icons what it was about all of us that loved them so much uh it's really emotional and um and uh you know it was in it was 
seeing that other movie, Nick Broomfield's movie, um, it did kind of, I would say, soften the blow a little bit for this new mm-hmm. one. Um, because the stories they tell are like 95% identical. And they, amazingly, they do it with almost completely different footage. There's, oh, very, wow. there, there's very little overlap uh, in the footage between the two. And uh, and also, Kevin McDonald is, this this new, this version, Whitney, is authorized, meaning he has access to the family and he's access to her songs, which Broomfield had neither. How could you do a Whitney documentary without the songs? He did it. He did. He it's somehow like MIDI did it. versions. And apparently, he had gone to. So Nick Broomfield did go to the doc. Did go to the family, and they felt like he was not the right person for it. But he was determined to make the movie anyway. And so Kevin McDonald knew while he was making his official Whitney movie that Broomfield was off doing his movie, and he said he was annoyed by that. Uh, but he was like, I don't know what kind of story he's going to be able to tell if he doesn't have access to the family and he doesn't have access to her songs. Um, so how does this? Other than having seen the other one prepare you emotionally because you kind of went back to that raw place for the first time since Mm -hmm. you died how do the two compare you know they're incredibly similar they're honestly they're very very similar um i would say you know i had this um i had like a a bit of a dust up with Mm -hmm. um with a local theater the other day because uh, so the roxy theater which is you know the historic independent movie theater here in the mission um, had had a sponsored post promoting a screening they they're doing of Can I Be Me Broomfield's movie, um, and uh, and it led with like the commentary above the post was like just in time for Kevin McDonald's um, officially official family sanctioned heartwarming sanitized version of of Whitney Houston's life. You watch Nick Broomfield's raw true version of the story, and. Um, and I had seen that shortly before I saw the, the the Whitney the new movie, and it struck me as odd just because when because this Whitney premiered at Cannes this year, and I had read a ton of stuff about it, and there was not a single eye shred of negative press about it or mm-hmm. anyone any critic being like, oh yeah, this is a sanitized, heartwarming. Um, so I, that kind of stuck out to me, and then after watching it and being once again utterly and completely walloped with the overwhelming sadness of her story, um, you know, I was like, fuck that post. Mm. And so I commented on it being like, where are you guys getting this from? Like, it just, you know, I don't like, these movies are so identical. I don't know why you're saying this bad, you're being so shady. And then they resurfaced it and promoted it yet again with the same bitter commentary. And this time I was like, guys, this is a bad look on you. This is mm. like, this is, seriously, it's like fake news. It's really gross. And um, and then uh, the executive director of the theater actually emailed me and said that she had seen my comment and that she agreed and that they were she was t- taking down that post and and uh, you know telling her staff to do a different angle to promote the Can I Be Me screenings. Um, but but so that's the thing is that the only ways that I would say that this is in any way quote sanitized is I think it's maybe a little there are two interview subjects in the movie that it's a little bit nicer to um, than Broomfield's doc. And those interview subjects are Sissy Houston, Ooh. Whitney's mother. Controversial figure. And Clive Davis. Oh. Yes. Controversial figure. Yes. So, uh, and, you know, principally, the main things that uh, that they leave out. So, uh, in Broomfield's doc, he includes, while he's sort of weaving together his version of, of Whitney's relationship with Robin Crawford, who was her longtime sort of confidant, best friend, and sometime girlfriend. 
whenever, uh, and which is something that is still something that, you know, no, Robin still isn't talking to anybody. Uh, she didn't talk to Broomfield. She hasn't talked to McDonald. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it seems like, you know, they're, they get enough people in each movie to be kind of like, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. Um, and I was reading an interview with McDonald today where he was saying in his exact opinion, based on all the stuff that he read and learned while he's making this, um, he believes that Whitney and Robin ended their romantic relationship right around the time that her first album was coming out because they both sort of mutually agreed, um, to just move forward as like best friends and partners and confidants. Um, and in the name of basically of ambition, knowing that mm-hmm. it would be mm-hmm. it would be something that would be like just this thing that would unravel the whole thing. They they were realistic and pragmatic about the world they were getting into, and that what they wanted to do was put all the eggs in the basket of Whitney's success. And um, and so they made the decision at that point to stop the romantic relationship. But so Broomfield, when he's painting the tapestry of the Robin Crawford chapter, um, he uses a clip from an Oprah interviewed Sissy Houston at some point after Whitney's death and Oprah's asking about Robin and, um, and she asked Sissy something along the lines of like, well, you know, there was always talk that Whitney may have, you know, Whitney may have been gay. Uh, you know, would it have bothered you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, this is, yeah. And Sissy was like, yes. And Oprah's like, it would have bothered you. Sissy's like, oh Yeah. And Oprah's like, so it would you you would not want your child to be gay, and Sissy's like, mm-mm. And uh, and she, it's interesting that you know this McDonald interview I was reading. He was talking about Sissy in general. He was like, she's a bad interview subject because she just like doesn't have like she's not great with like words. <laughs> um and uh and uh, and he's like he's like you go back and he he dropped this like shady bombshell. That apparently she was interviewed for twenty feet from stardom. And oh. um, and she got cut just because she just not, is not a compelling speaker. Interesting. Um, great movie, by the way. Great movie. And uh, and that's the same director that does um, "Won't You Be My Neighbor." Oh, yeah, Morgan Neville. Huh. I think is his name. Um. So, uh, yeah. So it does. So they get access to Sissy. They interview her. They get a few little nuggets out of her. Um. And it's powerful because they talk to her at the church where her and Whitney, where she was raising Whitney, where you know where where. Whitney was in the choir learning to sing and all that stuff. And so they have her sitting there in the church talking and you can tell it kind of unlocks some part of her. Um, so they do, they leave out the stuff. They have a lot of, they do have a lot of um, shady shit about sissy, but they do, they leave out the homophobic stuff. Mm. Um, and then for Clive, um, he's barely in the movie, um, but you know, and they do talk a little bit about how, Oh, well, you know, Clive, everyone always gave credit to Clive for having like, just packaged Whitney and presented her to the world. But really that was all sissy. They're like, sissy is the one who did all that. Sissy is, is, you know, it was, she was the, ma- the, the, the sort of like the puppet master that, that, that gave Whitney the, the sheen that she had. Um, but the one bit of shade in the Broomfield doc that is this one doesn't, uh, does not go into is that, um, Clive always took credit for like every maneuver that Whitney would take stylistically and um, and the one thing that people talk shit about in the Broomfield doc is when she did I'm Your Baby Tonight, um, which was her third album, it was considered um, her her detour into urban music. And that mm. came on the heels of one of the most shameful moments of her public life for her, which was when she was booed at the Soul Train Awards. Tell me more about that. Well, Whitney was um, a controversial figure. Uh, in sort of in the black music world in the in the late 80s for some 
um, who viewed her as being too white. Mm. And, you know, appealing to white people, making white people music, singing too white. Um, Al Sharpton led a protest. He called her Whitey Whitney. Mm. Um, it was a whole thing. And um, and so, and it was to the point where in like the 1988 or 89 Soul, uh, Soul Train Awards, uh, she was up for a number of awards. And when her name was read, uh, the whole crowd booed. Mm. And uh, and so, and incidentally, that's the night that she um, first started to flirt with Bobby Brown. Oh, wow. Um, who was, you know, who was a big star at the time. So, um, so basically, Clive's been like, you know, he was like, and it was my idea to have Whitney start making more urban sounding music. We want to try different things. Her voice can do anything. Um, but then all these guys from her entourage in the Broomfield Dock are like, Clive hated, hated the idea that she was going to start making this urban mm. album. Tried to stop it every way he could. But Whitney was going to get her way. And she was she was, she was, was done with it. She was done with being uh, scapegoated in the black press. She was done with feeling like an Uncle Tom. She was over it. And she wanted to make music that she felt like would be more resonant uh, you know, on urban radio. So those are the two main uh, differences that would make this movie feel more, quote unquote, sanitized. Yeah, that's about it. That's the only, you know, but aside from that, like, it is unsparing. It is unsparing. Uh, And, you know, and it kind of one ups, uh, you know, the all the all the stuff that was in the Broomfield doc in terms of, you know, looking back at her childhood and looking back at like, okay, she started using drugs as a teenager. One of the great myths about Whitney is that Bobby got Mm. her hooked on drugs. Not the case. Uh, Whitney started using drugs with her brothers when she was a teenager. And, um, and you know, they say, if anything, because Bobby was more, Bobby has talked about as, like, basically he was just a lightweight drunk uh, mm. whenever they met. Um, you know, it was Whitney who got him onto hard drugs. Hmm. So Bobby is not one to be um, valorized by any means, but this kind of longstanding reputation he has is, like, he ruined her. Right, right, right. No, 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 no. No, I mean, there was stuff that there was the fact that she was so drawn to Bobby being what, you know, the roughneck that he was, was basically like that was kind of like who she was inside. And that was what she grew up around in Newark. Uh, So it was really her connecting like, you know, with Bobby, some, you know, essential part of her, who she was, like the deep down real Whitney, you know, known as Nippy to her friends and family. Mm -hmm. Like she saw Bobby and was like, yep. And uh, it's like that high school crush, that high school feeling. The, yeah, the right. Like, that oh, you, that's like I would have liked when I yeah. was a, te- a teenager. Um, so as you mentioned, Bobby, and, and you mentioned the Amy Winehouse documentary before, one thing I had a very similar uh, watching experience with the Amy Winehouse documentary that you had with the other Whitney movie, which is I saw it with some friends on like a Saturday morning. And we were like, let's just like lounge around in jammies, <laughs> oh jammies and watch the Amy Winehouse documentary. Oops. We all left like if not crying, just like kind of staring at each other like we all just saw a car accident. Yes. And the biggest takeaway um, in the room was you spend all this time watching it and you like you, you you fall into the narratives that the press is telling that it's like it's Blake's fault or like it's her dad's fault or it's, you know, her being, you know, goofy and you but at the end of it, you just feel really bad because you're like, oh, it's actually my fault for mm. like laughing at all this and right. uh, thinking it's a joke and 
not thinking of the of her as a person because mm. she's famous. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Blake was just another person with an addiction, and her yep. father's trying to figure it out as you go along. And like people didn't make the right choices, but like, at the end of the day, yep. um, there's no like smoking gun of of who's to blame. No. Do you feel that way in in these movies or in this movie as well in the Whitney movie? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it does. Um, you know, it does have a, a segment where it talks about the parodies of Whitney that appeared uh, in on like Mad TV on Saturday Night Live. There's an especially uh, insulting, mean clip from American Dad uh, that makes that looks far worse than the impressions Deborah Wilson and Maya Rudolph were doing. Um, but you know, it's it's. I wouldn't say it's not a movie that's trying to confront audiences being like you all watch this happen because like there's nothing we can do as the public you know like Mm -hmm. fans always express their concern and i think that something that you know sadly it's been normalized that we're used to watching our public figures cope with addiction and um you know and i think we've learned as a public that you can't make anyone get help Mm -hmm. uh you know like no one could make amy or whitney get help until they wanted to um if they ever wanted to and um, so, but, you know, yeah, you do definitely walk out of this, walk out of the Whitney doc with that same just, yeah, feeling like, yeah, you're leaving a funeral. Uh, mm. You know, it's very, very heavy. There was a something kind of, God. So um, it, for, for this doc, they have, um, they wait until the title cards at the end to also tell you about uh, Bobby Christina's death. Right. Um, right. And, uh, and you know, and so, but at our screening of it, at our press screening, there was, I'll, I'll just say, a very, a very well-known San Francisco film critic was at the screening. And he, uh, and he left early, uh, right around the time that, you know, they were getting to, they were sort of, the film gets a bit ghoulish when it gets to Whitney's death because they actually, um, they film inside the suite that the Beverly Hilton that she, or the Beverly Hills hotel that she died in. And, um, and they, and as they have the voiceover from her assistant who found her mm. and, um, and they like, you know, like just like they're just tracking in and then going, and then there's the dad, they're showing the tub that she died in. And it's a little ghoulish. Um, and around that time, this critic left cause he's thinking like, okay, well that's the end. And, um, and so then afterward we leave and we're talking to the publicist and he was like, he was like, so he, he's like, so that critic, he comes out here and he's like, so whatever happened to the daughter? What? And I was like, uh, did they, did you, oh, did you not get to the end? And he's like, why? And so this publicist had to break the news to this top critic that like, she died. She died in the exact same circumstances that her mom died in. Oh, my God. Uh, it is. And the movie is actually like, it, yeah, this, this whoever wrote that thing for the Roxy, like this movie is so much harsher on Whitney and Bobby in the sense that they're just like, there are people in the movie who flat out blame them for Bobby Christina. They're like, they were horrible parents. Mm. They were not there for her. Uh, that girl never had a chance. Wow. And, um, you know, and it does have... Uh, the bombshell that's in this movie that's been reported on mm. the most widely in the press ever mm-hmm. since it premiered at Cannes is that um, they, and this is sort of, it's sort of edited in, in a similar way to Three Identical Strangers, where it's sort of like you can feel he kind of starts to set it up a little bit early on because he's interviewing like a, like sort of an older female relative of Whitney's and asks about the childhood. And she's like, it was idyllic. 
And he's like, oh, okay. And she's like, it was idyllic. And she just seems like weird. And then she's like, I sounded very defensive just there, didn't I? And he's like, well, yeah, a little bit. And she's like, mm. Um, and then, uh, and then much later we have this bombshell. The first time that anyone from the family's ever talked about it. That's something in the whole movie that you keep seeing is everyone is so used to lying for her. Mm. And, um, you know, partially because, you know, they were like, well, we'd be out of the inner circle if we were to ever tell the truth about her. Right. But also because she was their ATM. Like one picture that emerges from both of these documentaries is just how gross the situation was in terms of Whitney just being a cash machine um, and just feeling like she could never so many people depend on her for their livelihoods. So many people, extended family, friends, didn't have any job aside from just like having Whitney pay them to do some sort of like a nominal assistant work. And that made her feel like she never, she could never stop mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. the the weight of responsibility. But so, yeah, so this bombshell comes out that Whitney and her brother were both, uh, were both sexually molested by, uh, by a female relative when they were kids. And then it is uh, named as uh, Dee Dee Warwick, who is Dionne Warwick's sister, who is a singer in her own right. And, um, and I, before we were taping this today, I was, I, I have all Whitney's records on vinyl and I was looking at the liner notes for each one and looking at each one, like where she thanks Robin and how she words her thank you to Robin. And for her very first album from 1985, she thanks Dee Dee. Hmm. She singles hmm. her out. She's like, Dee Dee Warwick, I love you. And I'm like, how horrifying. How sad that, that, you know, at this point in her life, she's still like, well, it's my first record and I have to thank everyone. So mm-hmm. I'm going to thank my abuser Yeah. in the liner notes to my debut record that's going to break all these records. Um. So, you know, it is, uh, it is, you know, and, and that's, it's that kind of bombshell that like clearly uh, the family, the, you know, one of the things that McDonald, Kevin McDonald negotiated with the family was to have like absolute final cut. No, they didn't get it. They had no say mm. in the final product. And so they signed off on that. And I just have to wonder if they would have, uh, if they hadn't uh, given him that, right. if they would have pushed it, like, can we please take this out of here? Wow. And she, and she, Dee Dee Warwick passed away some years ago. Um, so she's not around to, um, you know, provide her version of the story, whatever you want to call it. But, um, but yeah, it's, oh, the whole thing is just so fucking sad. Uh, and I will say that this movie also, just like the last one, does not address being Bobby Brown, which was the, just smoldering train wreck reality show. Mm, oh, right. Oh, right. Yeah. That they had on Bravo before the housewives being Bobby Brown mm-hmm. was on Bravo. And I thought that I, I, I was under the impression, I think Andy Cohen had said at some point that he promised Dion Warwick because Dion Warwick was actually a guest on his talk show the night that it was announced that Bobby Christina had died. Oh, really? And, um, and she stayed on anyway. And I think that he said he had promised her that he would bury all that footage and he would never show it to anyone. Um, but Kevin McDonald says that he did have it. He's like, I had all of it, but it's just, you know, you're making a two hour movie and yeah. you got to cut yeah. stuff and, and that, and you know, and, uh, and, and there's, yeah, there's, they have one quick clip from it that they don't announce as being from being Bobby Brown, where she's like sitting at a bar somewhere and like greatest love of all is like playing the background on the radio in the bar. And she's just kind of like humming along to it. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking of a two-hour podcast, <laughs> I know you can talk about Whitney Houston for days. Oh, I could. But I'm going to have to ask you, uh, what are you going to give this one? You know, it's a binge it. Of course. It's a binge it. We're a triple binge this week. Triple binge. Triple, Doesn't happen very often. Triple binge. Whitney is rated R for language and drug content. 
And that brings us to our last movie of the week, which is Sorry to Bother You, our pick of the week. In an alternative reality of present-day Oakland, California, telemarketer Cassius Green finds himself in the macabre universe after he discovers a magical key that leads to material glory. As Green's career begins to take off, his friends and co-workers organize a protest against corporate oppression. Cassius soon falls under the spell of Steve Lift, a cocaine-snorting CEO who offers him a salary beyond his wildest dreams. I just really need a job. 40 on two. This is telemarketing. Stick to the script. Hey, hello. Uh, Mr. Davidson, Cassius Green here. Sorry to bother. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. As always, we'll be getting that out to you right away. Uh, guys, for this review of Sorry to Bother You, we have a very special guest to co-review it with us. Uh, she is a dear friend of mine, and uh, she is uh, somewhat of a Bay Area film scene luminary, and so we want her here to, uh, to weigh in and to uh, provide some additional context and her point of view on this film. So please welcome Alexa Fraser Heron. Thank you. Yay. Thank you. Oh, welcome, thank you so much. Welcome, welcome. Autographs later. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. We don't usually have um, guests with more than two names. Yeah, no, you might be our first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our first hyphen it, and we uh, are excited about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexa, tell our listeners a bit about yourself and the work you do in and around the Bay Area film scene. Um, well, I uh, am a filmmaker, and uh, I am primarily a writer-director um, an occasional producer. I also run a film collective called Scary Cow. Uh, and uh, for a lot of years, I worked behind the scenes in the drag community, which is actually how I met Jason. Mm-hmm. So I like I like big. I like audacious. I like weird. Um, I actually have a number of friends that worked on this film. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely... Um, I'm glad that this is the film that you guys brought me in to talk to you about because... It, I think, is sort of like our, you know, local boy does good, mm. like, success story. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, I don't know, things that uh, I love about the city and the filmmaking community here that I think showed up on the screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of thrilling to watch. Big, audacious, and weird. weird. Yeah. All three of Couldn't those words. Couldn't have said it better. Definitely <laughs> hit home with this movie. That's already a better podcast review than we ever would yeah. have given. So we can just wrap it up there. That was wonderful. Thank you. Way to Thank show, you. Way to show us names. up. Yes. In and out. Three names, three adjectives. And uh, and now here we are. Uh, Alexa, when did you first start hearing about Sorry to Bother You when it was sort of, I guess, just in pre-production or it was being scouted or people were getting screwed up? Um, I actually, I had produced a short film called Real Artists that was at the San Francisco International Short Film Festival, or sorry, not a short film festival, the San Francisco International Film Festival it's a film. last year, spring, <laughs> yeah in uh, the spring of 2017. And um, my friend Brian Benson, who is also a drag queen, Mm -hmm. uh, goes by the name Cousin Wonderlet. He also is a film professional. He he writes, directs, produces, does a lot of production management and odds and ends behind behind the camera. And we were at a party together and he introduced me to Boots. Mm. And this is Boots Riley, who is the writer director of this film. It's his first film, and yes. some know him best uh, from the uh, hip hop group The Coup. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so I knew a little bit about that. I knew that Brian was going to be working with Boots. They were planning to shoot his film that summer, and I just heard like a little bit 
just a little bit about it. Like I didn't know what it was about. Um, I was, even though I'm a fan of McSweeney's, I wasn't aware of how a couple years ago they published the script. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, so Dave Eggers mm-hmm. uh, knew that Boots was trying to get the script um, going and get mm-hmm. the film together. And he actually wrote it uh, when um, Obama was elected the second time. Really? Um, yeah, I believe 2012 was when he first started yeah. working on the script. So it's was, been a while. Was there a relationship between those two events? Was it talking about the re-election that inspired him? I think some of it, yeah. A lot of what was happening in the country certainly had mm. been informing sort of the story he wanted to tell. Boots himself has, I think, personal experience with telemarketing. And so yeah. there's a lot in this film that, from his personal life that, uh, you know, a lot of that came from experiences in his personal life. Yeah. Um, and so somewhere along the way, like struggling, he'll say like, you know, no one wants to, you're, you're like a, a rapper with a script. No one's like, oh, tell me more. Right, right. Dave Eggers, who we also know is attracted to big and weird. Yeah. Maybe audacious as well. Um, I don't know how they fell in together, but he offered to sort of help him out by publishing the scripts in McSweeney's hmm. to get it some more attention. Oh. And then also the coup actually made an album intended to be the soundtrack for the film mm. years ago. Wow. So yeah, years in the making. Yeah, a long time coming. Uh, and I also read today um, that uh, I read an interview with Boots where he said that initially they had uh, Donald Glover wanted to play Cassius. Uh, mm. and that, But then he had to drop out because of Solo. Yeah. Which that mm. was a bust. Bold choice. Poor choice. Well. Poor choice. But it, it... I mean, a check is a check. A check is a check. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that was a bigger one. Not that that's what should matter. And that's the whole point of this movie, Donald Glover. I mean, it's mm-hmm. also... I don't know. In the yeah. in the role of Cassius, it feels like it was made for Lakeith Samfield. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Just the way he yeah. holds his body. The, yeah. Like, Donald Glover is, like, almost too confident yeah. in his stance. Yeah. Lakeith um, looks like he's in pain. Like the a telemarketer yeah. would. Yes. Yeah, just a hunched over stillness. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you have either of you done telemarketing? Um, I used to work at a call center uh, called headsets.com <laughs> that sold headsets for telephones. And um, no one and took that domain. From that me. was my first job out of college when I moved to San Francisco. And so I was fortunately I was not doing I was not cold calling anyone. I've never had to do that. Thank God. Um, but it was still very much a call center where, you know, um, you know, I was, you know, you were, you were there to do sales and to do customer support and things like that. And <clears throat> the thing that I got the most, my version, there is this sort of like a performative thing you have to do with your voice, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, I think anyone, and certainly the racial dynamic in this movie is, is, is much more interesting, um, and, uh, resonant. But for me with the struggle that I had was, I my voice always read as female uh, whenever I would uh, so I I would say thank you for calling headsets.com this is Jason how can I help you and I'd have guys literally say back to me well hey there Miss Jason how are you damn (laughs) and I was like and I had to make a choice in the moment to just like commit Mm -hmm. I'd either commit to the female voice or I had to make them uncomfortable be like I'm doing okay and yourself um, you sound like a Yoda? Yeah. Yeah. Yoda? Oh my god! Yeah, I am doing. <laughs> uh, so that was that was that was that was the closest I came to any sort of um, voice identity crisis along the lines of this. But I did notice that when I was a woman, um, that the, that the men were nicer to me. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yes. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Like you just never know when you're going to be yeah. able to like get the digits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, it might turn into take the conversation offline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guys were guys were especially like you know especially guys from like the south uh, were always a lot friendlier. Little did they know who they were talking to. Twenty three year old who had just been cruising twenty four hour fitness across the street earlier that morning. Yeah, maybe they did. They might have. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that was my experience. Alexa, anything anything on your oh, end? Oh no, I understood at a very young age that telemarketing was my personal hell, and I avoided <laughs> any jobs that were telemarketing Good on related. Good on you. Uh, pro, uh, telemarketing, also my personal help, but that didn't stop me from being desperate one summer hey. and doing it. And it was a nightmare. Like that anxiety of every time the phone keeps ringing and you have to, I was selling newspapers. It was like the local, uh, maybe you remember from Ohio, the like, um, the sun, it would mm. be like the Brexville sun. Okay. And it's like, it has a, an everything. It's like the yeah. McKinney, Texas, you know, dispatch. And it's like these kind of like local papers. Um, and then with the phone would just keep ringing, you know, you'd hang up and it would ring again and you'd have to like find what region you were in and like do the thing. And it'd be like Saturday morning at 8 a.m. and like nobody wanted to hear it. Um, but the the vibe of the room was very similar to that to that experience where mm. they like offer you these ridiculous things. They'd be like, there's like two tickets to the baseball game today and four hundred dollars for whoever gets the most sales. <laughs> like they had these like the if you're good at and there'd be these older women that would like oh, yeah. again, very similar to what Cassius does in the movie, like make you like you could they would just sit there and shoot the shit with these people and then they would always have like the most sales. Like there's a a way to be good at it. Yes. And as we see in this movie, Cassius ends up being very good at it. Yes. By employing some of those techniques. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Uh, so Rebecca, so I also saw this film, um, I think around at this, probably the same screening Alexa saw it at, or actually, no, I think it was a press screening that was just like a day before that. So Alexa oh. and I saw it around the same time a few mm-hmm. months ago, and I watched it again two days ago with Rebecca. Mm-hmm. So it's more, fr- so Rebecca has just seen it for the first time. Uh, and, uh, and it is, uh, and uh, what was your, when you first walked out of the screening, I think you just kept saying, what a, what a wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) She went, she brought the Carson. What a wild ride. Carson, Um, I would say. More Carson. Yeah. I mean, it's so uh, frenetic. It's so exciting. It's so much fun. It's so, uh, relatable. It's so visually majestic and and inspiring mm-hmm. um what did you guys feel similarly do you remember can you touch back to those oh feelings? absolutely um i think that what i really loved about this film especially being that i'm a filmmaker is that it was so apparent uh that it's boots's film like it's so much of who he is is in this film mm-hmm. if you see like photos and videos of him doing junkets and interviews and going to film festivals and events He's dressed like a character mm. in the movie. He's like always in these cool little suits with like waistcoats and bow ties <laughs> and stuff. Like like he looks like he lives in that universe. And um, you know, I just I I definitely recommend seeing it in the theater because mm-hmm. if you're in like a good audience, like it's just even more fun. Mm. And I just loved how much it surprised me. I, I, with this film in particular, I tried to avoid information about it. And because I was able to see it a couple months ago, you know, there weren't really many trailers for it. And so, like, I didn't totally know what I was in for. (laughs) And, uh, but I still think I would have enjoyed it, even if I had a little bit more Mm -hmm. um, intel. But, uh, yeah, it's just such a raucous, like, punk Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. fun film you know it's it's there in the characters the language um the plot and the wardrobe especially yeah it's 
really fun even just hearing the characters uh, or the actors rather talking about what it was like wearing the costumes that they do in this film and how much that put them in like this really strange world yeah um i agree with you that um i i think we had so we had spent a couple of minutes before we started recording talking about like how much we actually wanted to talk about or not, and I think we've seen the trailer recently as a preview to a movie we've seen, and the trailer shows you some things and you get a, a feel, but I think it does a very good job of not telling you too much because I definitely went in uh, not knowing what was going to happen for most of it except for like the one um, twist that they they show you, which is the way that he ends up speaking when he when he's a telemarketer, mm-hmm. um, which is with a white voice, right? Mm-hmm. There's voice but, by David Cross. I would definitely say, yeah, try not to read any reviews of it um, if you can avoid that and enjoy the ride because it's wild. Yes. You know, it's just part of this ongoing kind of Bay Area renaissance of sorts we're having with, you know, first Ryan Coogler and, you know, whose films I know Brian Benson also worked mm-hmm. on, or at least the first one, at least Fruitvale. Not, I don't think he got pulled up for Black Panther. No. Uh, <laughs> I think he was busy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, she keeps busy. Mm-hmm. She works hard for the money. She sure does. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I think that, you know, Fruitvale is you know this you know this and fruitfield i think are interesting companion films as these two landmark debuts by these great you know barrier men of color talents uh and in and they are so complementary of one another in terms of telling stories of you know young black men in oakland uh in very different ways yes you know whereas fruitvale was necessarily incredibly grounded and earnest uh, and, you know, it just felt, you know, you felt the full weight, the full weight of the gravity of the story, the responsibility that Kugler felt to tell the story. Um, and then in Sorry to Bother You, we have this just just off the wall, audacious, gonzo acid trip satire um, about capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and it's and it's it's and the funny thing was watching it what it reminds me of more than anything i was reading something something boots wrote for like film comment about his influences and i was like i don't even know a single thing he's talking about in here for me it reminds me more than anything of like mid 90s like grunge slacker comedy oh mm. i see that it reminds yep, me of yep. like Pauly shore movies it reminds me of like <laughs> mall rats you know, like it reminds like me of, of, of those movies, um, except for with, of course, with a completely different lens and different worldview. But like, just like the whole when we're watching Cash and his girlfriend, girlfriend Detroit, played by Tessa Thompson, uh, you know, their their bedroom is like his uncle's garage, and um, you know, and it and it and it manages to, and for and yet for me somehow it suggested more those films. Uh, you know, then, you know, then, then sort of like the more like the urban can of movies from the 90s. It was giving me just like, yeah, just like 90s goofball comedy. And it has uh, a bit of that almost like reality bites where it's like mm, a slacker genius uh, yeah. that doesn't know what to do with his <laughs> p- untapped potential, um, mm-hmm. but is like incredibly cerebral and funny. Yeah. yeah. I also got kind of like a, because Boots is also a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminded me of other films made by people that if they're not musicians, they're also like kind of enmeshed with the music um, right. industry. And so it reminded me of like Tom DeCillo's, um Johnny oh. Suede. Oh, yeah. Like mm. that quirkiness mm. and just how like it almost feels like this strange fable unfolding with like fantastic uh, production design and wardrobe. And like 
sort of 80s era Jonathan Demme. Hmm. You know, like yeah. how you could watch his early movies and there's like Sister Carol and Chris Isaac and, you know, mm. all these little musical touches. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I love the garage and how mm-hmm. uh, the juxtaposition of how it starts with him living, his bedroom is his uncle's garage and then he has this gorgeous apartment, pseudo spoiler, yeah. mm-hmm. that's like beautiful, but feels bad it's in a it's like wedged into a corner Mm -hmm. yeah which Mm -hmm. i think is kind of genius because it's like you know kind of setting up that he's in a tight spot yes and it's also like also very clearly opened it's not like they took an apartment and it was like oh and then it was this like loft in the middle of and it looked like it was new york or something like it was still very much oakland which is kind of my favorite thing about my experience watching it was i got to watch a q a um and there was a woman in the audience who asked boots why he didn't shoot the film in a more conventional her words conventional city like new york or la and i'm sitting with a bunch of my friends and we we're all like bracing ourselves like fucking idiot (laughs) and like we didn't have to say anything boots just slowly lifts the mic up to his mouth and just goes Boo. <laughs> wow. It's like what what about the film you just watched gave you the impression wow. that this dude is following like the rule book? Right. And also like why wouldn't like did, did she even like this was after she'd seen the movie, right? Exactly. Like what about watching this movie would make her think like, oh well that could have been shot in New York or LA instead. Mm-hmm. And also this QA was in San Francisco. Yeah. Yes. Which we you should get some of the references right. that are going Lady, on. You're SF Film Festival. I was very confused. Wow. That's... And she sounded young. Well, you know what we have to say yeah. to her? Boo. 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 Wow. <laughs> uh, maybe he was just saying his name. Boots. It was what he was going to get to at the end. And he'll start clapping. And that's the thing about a film like this is it's so crazy and weird. Not everyone's going to understand it. Mm-hmm. And so my hope, my wish for it is that um, it gets a lot of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it does which i think it is right. so far yeah. like that's a big deal because it's such a weird movie yeah. and like i definitely would say if anyone's listening that hasn't watched the film yet like your key to a successful viewing experience that's actually enjoyable is like go in like kind of loosen up you know like mm. if you're gonna jump off of a waterfall they say to like <laughs> get loose right. so that you don't hit the water and you know you're all tight and stuff like that right. because like you gotta loosen your grip on reality because, yeah be chill because the movie did and uh, you kind of gotta go with the flow yeah is there uh is there any uh i'm trying to think if there's anything about the movie that we as bay residents should be able to like impart to people that they should know that would help them understand it better it's not really that. Did it, I don't even know if they ever say they're in Oakland in the movie. Mm. Uh, I don't remember them actually saying it. It certainly feels like it gets the feeling right, and mm. there's also definitely the the sort of intense, negative, suspicious attitude toward tech is mm-hmm. very appropriate for the Bay Area, and just this sort of the the a massive gulf between like the haves and haves not have nots in the film. Where we have, um, you know, the 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 world that Cassius comes from. Also, I should point out that what it took me until seeing the movie the second time to realize that his name was like wordplay. Cassius oh, Green. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Did not realize that the first time around. <laughs> my brain doesn't work like that. <laughs> uh, but you know, the film starts and like him and all his friends are just strivers, and you know, and and his girlfriend's job is literally twirling a sign. 
um, and she's an artist. And then we have there, and then we don't see any real middle ground. We see these basically starving artists, and then we see Army Hammer's character, who is this tech CEO. Um, although the nature of the company and the nature of the satire of the company felt more Amazon, which is not here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so I think that would be one bit of context that uh, people might not get if they're not here, that there is that, you know, that sense of the income disparity and uh, the sort of the very an- animus relationship between uh, sort of, you know, the creative underclass and big tech. Yeah, which I'd like to think there are many places in America that have that going. Um, And another thing that is certainly like a Bay Area um, staple is activism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, uh, you know, you have uh, Detroit's activism that is through art and she kind of it like seeps through whatever she's doing, like the sign, the sign holding gig that she does. Yeah. Um, But then there's also Squeeze by Stephen Young. Mm -hmm. um, He's a little bit like, well, he's a very sexy man, but his yes. approach to activism mm-hmm. is is less sexy than Detroit, right? He's yeah, um, it's, it's, more it's, of it's a, a it's a tall bar, yeah, it's a high bar to clear. True. I feel like it, the the film looks uniquely Californian, mm. but it like it doesn't look like L.A. So yeah. I feel like I would like figure out it was Oakland by default, or it doesn't feel like you know the Midwest and it doesn't feel like the East Coast at all. Um, but yeah, I don't think that you would know except if like there are particular landmarks. Yeah. Um, which I think there was at least one bar that you were telling me. The layover, yeah. yeah. The layover. Oh, and then there's Bart. And Bart. Oh, right. There's Bart in the background. Mm, You're like, Bart hey. in the background. And we should point out also that the score is by Meryl Garbus of right, Toon Yards. Right, Toon Yards, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I missed that. <laughs> All in the family. Uh, so, yeah, this is just a really uh, remarkable film. And it does, you know, I think it, there's a general consensus that it, it definitely has perhaps more ideas than it knows what to fully do with uh but i'd much i'd rather see that any day uh mm, you know a movie that takes on too much bites off more than it can chew but it does it all with just energy and verve and such originality mm-hmm. this is a, a plum a plum you know <laughs> i mean this it really does take you back to like n- sort of the early days of like 90s indie cinema when it felt like there were all these new voices coming out that were doing genuinely new work um voices that felt fresh like you hadn't heard before and that's harder and harder to come by. Oh, absolutely. It's a miracle that this film got made. And I'm glad that Booth mm. got the support. Like, it sounds like the journey was constantly, like, doors getting shut in his face and, mm. and going back to people that helped him to ask for more help. And it's just awesome, like, to watch it now that it's complete. It is. It looks like a dream come true, especially, mm-hmm. you know, coming from me as being right. a filmmaker who right. has to depend on people's assistance to be able to make the work I want to make. But, like, it feels like a film that was really fun to write, really fun to make, and now it's really fun to watch. Yeah. You know? And, like, I can't remember Mm -hmm. the last time I watched a movie that felt that. And I feel like that, like, gives the film an aura. Like, it, I feel it, like, like it rubbed off on me in the process of watching it. Mm -hmm. And that's really special. It's infectious. Yeah, it really is. It makes me want to, like, go out in Oakland more. Or I was just thinking, like, well, how can people... I do. I should leave the house sometimes. (laughs) Like, how can people help local filmmakers if they don't have money to offer? Like, what what can you, what can someone in a community do? Like, are there volunteer opportunities, you know, as part of the community? There could be. I mean, one of the things that I think are, uh, like, a good approach when you want to help, but you don't, you're like, oh, but I'm not a filmmaker. Oh, I don't have money. Is, like, think about what is the thing that you do do already. Like, Jason is a great writer, you know? Oh. Like, hmm. he could probably 
sit down with me and help me work on some PR pieces mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, what are things that you're good at that mm-hmm. and how can they apply to a film? Like if you're a great cook, you can like talk to the really low budget people and say, you know, can, can I help you yeah, provide bring with bring, a meal right, yeah. or something like that, you know? Interesting. Um, but yeah, that's the thing about yeah. film. Like when you don't have a ton of money, you just have to be really, really creative about getting everything done. And it's, yeah. you know, it takes a village. Yeah. Interesting. What you have. So you can do telemarketing then. Good. Uh, finally. Good. Raise, um, raise funds. Hi, yeah. uh, Mr. Johnson. This is Rebecca. Have you seen Sorry to Bother You? Sorry <laughs> to Bother You. Have you seen Sorry to Bother You? I'm so sorry to bother you. All right. This movie, uh, we're giving it a binge it, correct? Binge it. Mm-hmm. Would you say binge it, Alexa? Oh, Absolutely. Um, And it is our pick of the week. Uh, It's rated R for uh, pervasive language, some strong sexual content, graphic nudity, and drug use. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a blast. Yeah. Where can we learn more about what you do or Uh, have people harass you when they want to? Oh, perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I live Like in a bad way. Here's Mm -hmm. my home address. Right. Uh, well, the film collective that I run is uh, scarycow.com. And as a filmmaker, like with my personal work, I'm um, pretty terrible. I do not have much of a social media footprint. <laughs> um, I am in the middle of preparing for a month-long writing residency in September in Atsat, France. So right mm. now, I have a GoFundMe to help get me there <laughs> yeah. because I've had a rough year financially mm-hmm. um but that is gofundme.com forward slash alexa in atsa which is a-l-e-x-a in a-x-a-t mm. it's a french village that i apparently was born to go to because we have so many <laughs> letters in common but um i i give that url not expect i'm terrible see this is where our, like one of my weaknesses as a filmmaker Jason, can you do it for terrible him? about asking people for too. money yeah but i give you that link so that you can at least follow right. the follow fundraiser along. and then when i actually have a website and things yes. like that you'll hear about it i say you have been great with posting updates uh and uh and yeah so and it's just yeah guys you can see it happen in real time follow along uh and it's certainly at me as an aspiring screenwriter uh am green with envy and uh very excited to see what happens uh when you spend your time in france uh alexa it's been a wonder having you here thank you so much for making time for us oh thank you my love i had the best time yay and that's it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of The Binge. Um, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or uh, Google Podcasts or Stitcher or whatever it is you get your podcasts. Jason is on Twitter at... Excess Baggage. I am at Fight Balance. Um, please continue to uh, correct us on Twitter. Um, we <laughs> know because nobody else will. We welcome it. Um, thank you so much. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There goes the binge. binge.